Anybody know um, if you wrote down every single thing that Jesus did and accomplished, you know how many books it would take you to be finished? Anybody know? <laughs> Amen. I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that will be written. Amen. The world couldn't contain it. But today, we land on one of those that God wants us to know about. It's Mark 9, 1 through 13, Transfiguration. And uh, in the sovereignty of God, that's where we're at today. You can turn with me to Mark 9. And uh, I'm going to pray in just a second, but just to let you know what we're doing. You know, we've been just coming through for folks that are new, we've just been coming through the book of Mark. Uh, section by section, and this is where we landed today. And as I say often, I really do. I believe that God is sovereign, and He uh, it's not a uh, didn't surprise Him that you're here. Didn't surprise Him that we're going to look at this passage today. So, so let's uh, let's pray that God will speak to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this passage of Scripture. Thank you so much for letting us. Know you, Lord God. Just as we just said, that the world couldn't contain, there's not enough books in this world to contain all that you've done. And you let us get a piece of that today. And I just pray, God, that as we just look at you and this glorious way that you've revealed yourself and this awesome things that you've done, that you would open our eyes, just like it's already been prayed, Lord, that you would help us to see you, Lord Jesus. God, our, our eyes are. Are, are not fully unveiled. We don't see you like we will one day when we see you face to face, but God, I just ask for more of it. Help us to see you in your glory. Open our eyes. Thank you so much, Lord, for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're about to, we're about to read in just a minute the story of the transfiguration. Uh, you got Jesus's, he's gonna be transformed like the sun shining in its strength, Okay. The disciples are going to be trembling, scared to death. Elijah and Moses are going to show up in the New Testament. And, uh, and we're going to hear God the Father speak from heaven. So when you've read this, you know, if you've read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you've read through it over and over again. And you've come across this story, what's come to your mind? When you think about the transfiguration, you read this story, you've come through it again and again. What, what comes to your mind about this particular story, did you think, this is random, why did this happen this way? Or did you think, this is a little bit odd, I don't understand this? Or did you think, what's the point, what is the point of the transfiguration? Do you ever think of these sort of things? If you're like me, the first few times you read it, you're thinking, I've got to be missing something. There's some kind of deeper meaning that I'm missing here. And the first few times I read it, that's kind of how it was. And then eventually I just read over it, and didn't think much about the significance of the transfiguration. Let me give you a few thoughts of other men and what they think about the transfiguration. This is what Steve Lawson said. He said it's a preview of future glory. And then he went on to say this. This is the greatest manifestation of the glory of Christ. Man, that was a big, big claim. All right, Sinclair Ferguson said this. He said the transfiguration is one of the most sacred moments in the whole history of salvation. And we're about to read about it. And more important than those guys, the apostle Peter, he said, this is what he said about the, the transfiguration. He said, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
That's in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 through 18. He's, he's, he's recalling. If you think about that in 2 Peter, this is Peter's dying letter. I mean, he's about to die. And, and he wants to tell them about the power in the coming of the Lord Jesus. And so what does he recall to mind in his dying letter? The transfiguration. He says, we saw the majesty of Christ. We saw His majesty. So this is a very, very, very important passage. Let's read it. Verse 1 through 13. And he said to them, Assuredly I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a, on a high mountain apart by themselves and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launder on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here and let us, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because he did not know what to say for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came, came and overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. Suddenly when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Now as they came down from the mountain, He commanded them that they should tell no one the things that they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. And they asked Him, saying, Why, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And, and how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they wished as it is written of him. So let's start with verse 1. First thing I want to do is I want to try to take verse 1 and put it in its context, okay? This verse, Mark 9 verse 1, you see there's Jesus' words, and it's actually the very end of His discourse that began in chapter 8, verse 34. So if you're looking in your Bible, chapter 8, verse 34, and Jesus begins to speak to the disciples and to the multitudes, and His last sentence is actually chapter 9, verse 1. Okay, now if you look at the other accounts in Matthew 16 and 17, Luke 9, you'll see they actually put these together. There's no break in the chapter division. This should be a quick little reminder to us not to allow chapter and verse divisions to keep you from seeing the flow of thought of God's Word. I praise God for chapter and verse, otherwise we have a hard time just going section by section through Mark, right? We'd forget where we were. But, but right here, don't, don't allow it to keep you from seeing the flow of thought even any time that you're in the Word like this, okay? So this is actually the, the end of that discourse. It starts in 834, chapter 9, verse 1. So here's what I'm going to do. I want to take a second just to think back over the, the last section, even the section that Dustin taught on last week, and let's just kind of get a, 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 since this chapter 9 verse 1 is the end of that, let's kind of get a summary of this, okay? So what happened? So Jesus this whole time has been revealing to His disciples that He is the Christ. And it seems like they'll get it. If you read through Mark, it seems like they'll get it. And then they'll say something, do something to show you that they don't. And then it seems like they, they get a little bit more, and then it seems like they don't. And that keeps happening all through this book as they walk with Jesus. 
And then you get to this place in chapter 8, verse 29. And in that, in that little place, Jesus looks at them and He says, Who do you say that I am? And Peter nails it. He says, You are the Christ. So He tells them, You're the Christ right there. Peter just nails it. But there's one problem. One big problem. When Peter thinks Christ, he doesn't have a biblical Christ in mind. In, in fact, he has a Christ of his culture in mind. When he thinks Christ, he thinks a conquering king who's going to come and he's going to destroy all of his enemies and he's going to set up his eternal kingdom forever and ever and ever over every nation, tribe, and tongue. And that's what he thinks. And that's true, but something's missing. And they didn't see that the Christ, and this was common in the culture, and Peter missed it and the disciples missed it, they didn't see that that coming Christ was first, before he reigned as the eternal king, was going to suffer and he was going to die for the sins of his people. And that's the reason as you come through chapter 8 with Dustin Tuttle last week, Jesus turns after He says, you are the Christ. Jesus turns right after that and he says, he says, He began to teach them that the Christ must suffer and be killed and rise again on the third day. And what Peter did? He said, no, Lord. And he rebuked Jesus for saying that He would be one that suffers and dies. Why? Because this view of Christ didn't fit in His mind. It was not the view of Christ that he had. He had a view of Christ that was going to be a conquering king. He was going to lead Israel out of bondage, just like uh, Moses did of old in Egypt. But this was not, he didn't have in mind the one that was going to suffer and the one that was going to die. So let me do something real quick. I want to mention a few Old Testament passages, okay? There's many, many Old Testament passages that will help you see what, a, what an Orthodox Jew would have thought about the Christ to come. Most of them. Okay, there's many of them all over the Bible about him coming as a conquering king. But I just want to give you a few of them that are actually alluded to or directly mentioned in our passage today. Okay, and you don't have to flip there, but I'll give you the first one. Deuteronomy 18, 15 says this. It says this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet. Now, this is Moses speaking. Moses speaks to the people, says the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst. From your brethren, him you shall hear. So they were looking for one to come and deliver the nation of Israel out of bondage, just like Moses went in with power and signs and wonders and delivered the people of Israel out of Egypt. That's what they were looking for. And Christ would be that one, but they neglected the fact. They missed the truth. They missed the scripture that first he would suffer and first he would die for the sins of his people. They missed that not only is he the... the De the Deuteronomy 18, 15 Christ, but he's also the Isaiah 53 Christ. You remember Isaiah 53? It says that the one who's coming, he's going to be wounded for our transgressions. He's going to be crushed for our sins. Our punishment laid on him. By his stripes, we are healed. The one that's going to come under the wrath of God on our behalf, he missed that. He did, they didn't see him as the, the Isaiah 53 Christ. They saw him as the only the Deuteronomy 18 15 Christ. They didn't have the whole truth. Let me give you another one. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. It's Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Now Christ in chapter 8 and chapter 9 of Mark is called the Son of Man. He refers to Himself as the Son of Man. Well, here's where that comes from. Listen. I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought Him near before Him. Then to Him, that's the Son of Man, 
Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. And that's what they were looking for. And Jesus would go on to be this king over every nation, tribe, and tongue. He will. He is that Christ. And yet they missed the fact that He was the suffering servant that would first die for the sins of His people. Now why is it a big deal? Why is it a big deal that Jesus would go to the cross before He would reign eternally as King? Why the cross? Why is the cross so necessary? Because you know this, because if Christ Jesus reigns as King and He never goes to the cross, then we stand as enemies to this King. And we're deserving of nothing but wrath from this king. We're his enemies. But because he goes to the cross, he makes reconciliation. And all the wrath of the king is poured out full strength on him. Oh, he takes our sin away. And he actually takes us out of the kingdom of darkness and makes a way through the cross that we would be in his kingdom. So he must go to the cross first and then reign as king. All right, flip with me to this last one, Malachi. Chapter 4, again, I just want to get, get in your mind. What were Peter and the disciples and, and the common thought throughout Israel when they thought about the Messiah, the Christ, what were they thinking? And here's another one. you got the Deuteronomy 18 Christ. you got the Daniel 7, 13 and 14 Christ. And here you got the Malachi chapter 4. And just walk with me through this. Now this one, I want you to flip to this one because this one is actually going to be referred to very explicitly in our passage today, okay? Malachi 4, 1. Behold, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble, and the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. That will, that will leave them neither root nor branch. He says there's a day coming. There's a day coming that's burning like an oven, and all the wicked and all the proud are going to be burned up, and there'll be no root or branch. They will be burned up forever. There's no second chance in this day. Verse 2, but to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, the Son of Righteousness, Jesus Christ, shall arise with healing in His wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the, the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. So there's this day coming, burning like an oven, He says. And this is what those Jews, this is what they, Jews, what they were looking for. And they thought about the Christ to come. They were looking for that day coming, this burning like an oven, and all the wicked are going to be destroyed, but the Son of Righteousness, the Christ, is going to rise. And then all those who fear Him, all those who are in Him, they're going to, like a, like a calf stuck up in a stall, coming out leaping for joy. They're going to be like that, it says right here. And then verse 4 says, remember. He gives a command first. Remember the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and the judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So what do we see here? These Jews, think about Peter, think about these Jews, what do they have on their mind about this crisis coming? This one that's coming like Moses as a deliverer of his people. 
This one that's coming like Daniel, this king who's going to reign over forever, over every nation, tribe, and tongue. And this, they were looking for this day in Malachi. And I want you to note a few things because we're going to bump into this in just a minute. Make a mental note. Malachi chapter 4, it says there's one coming. He's going to come like the sun, S-U-N, the sun of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. A command, remember the law of Moses. Moses. And then a promise that Elijah is coming before this great day. Elijah is coming before this great day. I want you to note those things. And Jesus would come. He will come as this Malachi for Christ. But they missed the fact that first he must suffer and die for sin. So this is what we see. The disciples of Jesus Christ right here, they see that Jesus draws it out on that He is the Christ. And then Jesus begins to correct their understanding in chapter 8. You see that? And Peter doesn't like it. And he corrects their understanding. And then what we're going to get to now is the last two sentences. As Jesus turns in 834 to speak to to His disciples and to the multitudes, let's read the last two sentences, chapter 8, verse 38, and chapter 9, verse 1. Let's read them. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when He comes in His glory. And of, and of His Father and with the holy angels. And He said to them, Assuredly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. So what does He say first? He says, don't be ashamed of Me. Don't be ashamed. I, I know you say that I'm the Christ and you don't realize that I have to suffer first. Don't be ashamed of the suffering servant. Don't be ashamed. I know this is not what you expected, but don't be ashamed, he says, of a dying Christ. And then he says, if you're ashamed of me, the Son of Man. He calls himself the Son of Man. He calls himself that eternal King from Daniel chapter 7. And he says, the Son of Man will be ashamed of you when? When he comes in his glory. In the glory of his Father and all the holy angels with him. So he tells them, I'm coming. That Malachi 4 Christ, I am that Christ. Don't be ashamed now that first I must suffer. And then you get to chapter 9, verse 1, and He gives you this promise. And it says, some stand... Here's the promise. Some of you standing here. He's looking at the multitudes. He's looking at the disciples. Some of you standing here. And we're going to know in a minute that He means Peter, James, and John. But He looks at him and says, some of you standing here. Here's the promise. You're not going to taste death until you see the kingdom of God coming with power. Now, what does this mean? What does this mean? And this should be a reminder to us because many people have taken, there have been people that take this verse and they, they rip it from its actual meaning and they try to use it against Jesus to discredit Him. They say things like, look, Jesus said that, that, that some of those disciples were going to see His kingdom coming in power. See, that's what Jesus said. He thought he, he, he thought he was coming back in the first generation and He lied and He was wrong and they'll say things like that. Well, what's the problem? The problem is, is they're not being very careful in their reading of this verse. They're assuming that when Jesus says the kingdom of God is going to be present with power, they're assuming that He's talking about the second coming. They're assuming that. But it's plain. If you look right here in 9 verse 1, it's very plain what Mark is laying out. He says, you're going to see, Jesus says, you're going to see the kingdom of God coming with power. And then what does Mark do in the next verse? He gives a uniquely specific time period, which is rare in Mark a uniquely specific time period, and he says, now, after six days, in verse 2, now, 
after six days. Mark is making it clear. The, fu- the fulfillment of the promise in 9-1 is coming. And six days later, it came in the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. So the some standing here that are going to see the kingdom of God coming with power are Peter, James, and John who are about to see the transfigured Christ. So this should put some more weight on it, right? Steve Lawson said what? This is the greatest manifestation of the glory of Christ. Wow. The, the, the apostle Peter said what? He said we, we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. His majesty. But then what is Jesus? How does Jesus describe the transfiguration? What does He say about it? He said you're about to see the kingdom of God present with power. Transfiguration is awesome. Incredibly important. Absolutely amazing. And we're about to dig into it a little bit deeper. You excited? All right. So just to summarize before we go to verse 2. In chapter 8, you see him reveal himself as the Christ. He reveals himself as the Christ. And then he begins to correct their understanding that the Christ must first suffer before he's that Malachi for Christ. Okay? And then he gives the transfiguration and he's going to show, I am, it's like he's just giving them a taste of it. I am that glorified Christ. I am that one that's going to come in power. And then at the very end, we're going to see it at the very end of our section today, in verse 11 through 13, he's going to remind them that I'm going to suffer first. So it's like he's doing the same thing back to back. So let's go to verse 2. So we're about to get our eyes on this glimpse of the glorified Jesus, okay? Let's read verse 2. Now after six days... Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves and He was transfigured before them. The word transfigured, it means He changed forms. The word metamorphosis, we get that word from this Greek word. A metamorphosis just went down. A change of form. Jesus is undergoing a change of form. So I want you to see the big picture, okay? Just think about the big picture here. Jesus promises them what? You're about to see the kingdom of God present with power. Six days later, he takes some of them, Peter, James, and John, up on this high mountain. Now, if you read the account over in Luke 9, Jesus didn't say, come on, I'm about, you're about to see me transfigured. If you read the account in Luke 9, he actually went up, there, it went up the mountain to pray. And they go up there to pray, and they begin to pray, and the disciples, of course, fall asleep. They fall asleep, and guess what they wake up to? The transfigured Jesus, and they are scared half to death. And that's what we're about to see in just a moment. He's transfigured. He's, he's undergone a metamorphosis. And what exactly did this, this transforming look like? Look at verse 3. Look at verse 3 with me. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launder on earth can whiten them. It says his clothes. So what did it look like, the transfiguration? His clothes. It begins to describe his clothes. His clothing became, it says, shining. This word is radiant. It's glistening. Think bright lights that you can't look at. It's that sort of shining. Like when when Moses saw, remember Moses saw the glory of God in the Old Testament? And his face began to reflect the shining of the glory of God. And it terrified the people. And so he put a veil over it to cover up this brightness, to cover up the reflection of the glory of God. That's just the reflection. This is actually emanating from Christ, divine glory and shining. It's not a reflection of the glory of God. It's actually just pouring out of Him, and it's going to terrify these men as well. 
Now, to explain the radiance of his clothes, to explain the shining of his clothes, what phrase does it use in verse 3? He says, exceedingly white. The ESV says, intensely white. What does it mean? We're not talking the color of light. Okay, I mean, excuse me, the color of white here. We're talking white like light. Okay, that's what we're talking. Listen to Matthew 72. His clothes became white as light. Luke 9, 29. His robe became white and glistening. That word glistening right there is like lightning bolts. So think lightning coming off of his clothing right here. And then again, okay, you're in Mark 9, 3. To describe the appearance of his clothing, what does he say next? He says, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. What's he trying to say? This kind of, this image I saw, this bright light, this whiteness, see it intensely white coming off of him. No launderer on earth can do that. In other words, this is not of the earth. This is otherworldly what they are seeing right now in Christ Jesus transfiguration. This is beyond their imagination. Now, this is just describing Jesus' clothing in the transfiguration, right? If you read the account in Luke 9, it says His face changed form. It says the appearance of His face was altered. Matthew 17, listen to this, it says His face, His face shone like the sun. Can you picture that? When's the last time you looked at the sun? S-U-N. When's the last time you gazed at the sun? I hope it hasn't been recently. It's like this. It hurts your eye. This is what they're seeing coming off of Christ is the divine glory of God, who He is, comes flowing out of Him in that moment. And with Moses, when they had the reflection, the veil could actually cover it, but not here. Jesus' face is shining. All it does is light up His clothes like lightning. So you've got Jesus' face shining like the sun. His clothes flashing like lightning. So what's going on here? And what's happening is Jesus has given us a glimpse. Jesus has given these three disciples a glimpse into something, a glimpse into His eternal state. He's given them a glimpse of what He's going to be like for all of eternity. Think about it. John's here. John walked with Jesus, and he's a part of the three. He saw the transfiguration. Well, he's going to see something similar one day. Okay? And if you keep reading, you'll see it in Revelation chapter 1. You get to Revelation chapter 1, verse 12 through 17, and what do you see? And you see John's called up into heaven, and he sees the ascended Jesus. And what does he see? He sees this. His eyes like a flame of fire. His voice is the sound of many waters. Think waterfall coming down, this, this booming voice. And His countenance, get this, His countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And we get a glimpse of this eternal state of Jesus in the transfiguration. And He just gave a flash of it to the disciples. This is awesome. We're also getting in this little, this little glimpse of the transfiguration, he's, Jesus is taking these three disciples and He's giving them a preview of His second coming. Remember Malachi 4, what's he going to come as? The son of righteousness with healing in his wings. The S-U-N, the son. You remember 2 Thessalonians? says when he comes back, you read that, that little place in 2 Thessalonians where it says he's going to come back and the wicked one is going to be destroyed. With what? With the brightness of his coming. So what we're getting a glimpse into is, this, is Jesus' second coming. And then also, and don't miss this, Jesus gives these three disciples and us, and us, a glimpse into His divinity. That though He's wrapped in flesh and He is fully man, that's true about Jesus, yet He is fully God. 
He is the God man. So what you're getting a glimpse of here in this transfiguration is his God, his godness. He is still fully divine, though he is fully man. Listen to Psalm 104, verse 1. Oh Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light, with light as with a garment. God covers himself with light as with a garment. And so we look to Jesus and we say, Oh Jesus. God wrapped in flesh. You are very great. You are clothed with majesty and splendor, Lord Jesus. And you clothe yourself with light like a garment. This is what we get a glimpse of in the transfiguration. Don't miss the significance of this. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. So He's called the Word there and He's God. In verse 14, the Word became flesh. And right here, you're seeing His Godness just shine through His flesh as He gives them a glimpse of this. <clears throat> if you, um, Colossians 2, I believe it's Colossians 2, 6, it says, it says that in Him, in Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All the fullness of deity dwelling in a body, a human body in Christ Jesus. And here we see it shine through. Listen to F.F. F. Bruce. He said this, For a few moments... The heavenly glory, which was normally veiled by the condition of our Lord's incarnate life, shone through His body and its covering. One commentator said something like this, What's more glorious, that His glory, His divine, eternal glory shone through for a moment, or that He was actually able to restrain it for 30 plus years? Mark 9, 4. Verse 4. And Elijah appeared to them, with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Wow. It's just a, I don't have to say anything, right? Just a wow factor. Did that just say Moses, who was on earth 1,400 years before Jesus, and Elijah who was there 900 years before Jesus? Did he just say that they showed up on the mountain and they're talking to Jesus? Moses, the representation of the law, Elijah, the representation of the prophets, reminding us that all the law and the prophets speak of Christ Jesus, that the whole Old Testament is like one big divine finger pointing to Christ. And this is the reminder. Now, have you ever asked yourself this question? What were they talking about? (laughs) What were Moses and what did Moses and Elijah? They showed up to talk to Jesus in this moment about what? Well, you don't have to wonder anymore. Because if you read Luke chapter 9, verse 30 and 31, listen to what it tells us. Moses and Elijah appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. How important is the death of Jesus? Moses and Elijah show up and they can't think of nothing better to talk about than the death of Jesus that he's about to accomplish. This is awesome. So that, that verse in, in Luke 9, 30 and 31, it says, they spoke of his decease, which he's about to accomplish. So he calls the decease or the departure of Jesus, he calls it an accomplishment right here. How is the death of Jesus an accomplishment? What did it accomplish? Jesus' death accomplished redemption for us. Don't you know that? That a price had to be paid for your soul and his death purchased, it was the purchase price. For your soul. 
At the cross of Christ, expiation was accomplished, meaning your sin and your guilt poured out on Him, laid on Him instead of on yourself. At the cross, propitiation was accomplished, meaning all the wrath of God is satisfied. At the cross, the grounds for reconciliation were accomplished. You were an enemy of God, and He made a way for you to have peace with Him at the cross. At the cross, the ground was laid for, for adoption. It was accomplished for adoption, for you to become a son or a daughter of God. And in Mark 9, 4, it says Moses and Elijah, they show up, and that's what they're discussing. What's about to go down at the cross? Now, before we move on to the next verse, let me mention one more quick point. If you read that little verse I keep referring to in Luke 9, 30 and 31, the way it says is they, they spoke of his decease. That word there, if you just look up the Greek word, it's literally exodus. They spoke of his exodus. Anything stand out to you about that? Moses, the one of the Old Testament. First, first we hear about him in exodus. And he leads his people in an exodus. Right, up for the, right after the Passover lamb is slaughtered, Moses leads his people in an exodus out of the land of slavery into the promised land. And now that Moses is sitting there looking at the Passover lamb. And the one who's about to lead out a greater exodus of his people. And he's face to face with them. All right, verse 5 and 6. Let's read it. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. So here we see Peter's response to this amazing sight. Okay? Now, the first thing I want you to see is what's going on internally. What's happening with Peter and the disciples on the inside? What's happening here? It says there in verse 6, they were greatly afraid. Of course they were afraid. You know what they just saw? Think about what they're seeing right now. Of course they're greatly afraid. If you look again at that parallel account in Luke 9, what you see is they woke up to the transfigured Jesus shining like the sun. They woke up to Moses and Elijah speaking with Jesus about his death. And here in Mark 9, 6, it says they were greatly afraid. If you mesh the accounts together, Matthew 17, Luke 9, and Mark, if you mesh these accounts of the transfiguration together, what you see is they were scared to death the entire time. They wake up and they're afraid. In just a minute, a cloud is going to overshadow them and it's going to say they were greatly afraid. And then as the cloud overshadows them, a voice is going to come out of heaven. And after that voice, the voice of the Father, Father springs forth. What's going to happen is they're going to hit their face in great fear. They're scared the entire time this is going on. That's how amazing and how powerful the transfiguration was. So here's Peter. He's in shock almost. He's full of fear. He's not knowing what to say. And what does Peter say? Teacher, it's good for us to be here. Let us make a tabernacle for each one of you. Okay? And here's all I want you to see. Looking at the other accounts, here's what you notice at the other accounts in Luke 9 and Matthew 17. These guys, what was happening is Moses, you get the timing of when he said this. Moses and Elijah were actually walking away in this moment. And it's as if Peter that moment said, no, 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 it's good for us to be here. It's like he's saying, don't go. Don't let this moment in. Don't let this transfiguration moment in. Is what he's saying. And this is very good. Let us make tabernacles and just stay here. We'll make one for each one of you. That's what he's saying. 
Now, this shows us a very interesting collision of emotions. Do you see it? It's interesting, right? They are filled with fear the entire time, and yet what? They don't want to leave. They are scared to death in the presence of the glorified Jesus, and yet they want to stay there forever. They don't want to go anywhere. You see this weird collision of emotions? What does that remind you of? This is like a glimpse into heaven. We can't even understand this right now. We've got little things that might happen that might bring us close maybe, like watching a thunderstorm and you love it and you get that thunderclap that makes your heart beat and it scares you to death, but you just keep watching. That's maybe getting uh, nudging up next to it. But in heaven, this is what you see, this odd collision of emotion that you are going to be scared to death. You're going to be fearful and trembling in the presence of the glorified Jesus, and yet you won't ever want to leave. And you're going to say, this is good for me to be here. This is good for us to be here. But there was a major problem with his words. He said, it's good to be here, but what was the major problem? He said, let us make a tabernacle for each one of you. You see what he did? He just put Jesus and Moses and Elijah on the same playing field. He put them on the same plane. And that's a big mistake. And that's a big mistake. And that's when you get to this divine interruption where God the Father interrupts right now. Look at verse 7. And a cloud came over, came and overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. Now this is the glory cloud from the Old Testament. Remember it came over the temple. The glory of God filled the temple. The priest couldn't even minister there anymore. And here this glory cloud comes and overshadows them. And this voice is the voice of God the Father booming from heaven just like we saw at Jesus' baptism. Now, if you read the account in Matthew 17, here, here, it gives you a little phrase here. It says, listen to this, it says, while Peter was still speaking. So Peter, the bumbling words that he didn't know what he's saying, they're coming out of his mouth. And as he's still speaking, this divine interruption comes down and God the Father overshadows him and said, that's my beloved son, hear him. It's as if God the Father says, my glory I will not give to another. It's like He says, don't put, the, don't put these men on the same plane as my Son. You hear Him and Him alone. It's a divine interruption. Now let me give you a side note here. A parenthesis, a quick side note. There is time for interruption. There's time to interrupt. There's a time for interruption, okay? We should listen very carefully and very respectfully, and very very graciously, and full of love. We should listen to those who oppose us. But there is a time for godly interruption. Have you ever heard someone, so let me put it in front of you, have you ever heard someone malign Jesus to you, and, and just distort the gospel of Jesus Christ? And there was this godly fear, even this godly zeal that rose up in you, and you interrupted, and you defended the Lord Jesus Christ, and you defended His glorious gospel? There is a time for that. Now what we see here though is God the Father, a divine interruption against Peter over, over zeal for the glory of His Son. And what does, what does God the Father say? What, what can we learn? He says, this is, my beloved, you, this is my beloved Son, hear Him. What can we learn from those words? We can learn a lot from those words. In fact, let me read a quote to you from Danny Aiken. He said this, God now speaks words that thunder with authority and are pregnant with meaning. 
So there's a lot we can learn, but let me give you one detail. One quick detail. I just want to point out one awesome detail, okay? Think about this. The Father's voice booms from heaven. This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. So He states a fact. God the Father states a fact. That's my beloved Son, and He gives a command. Hear Him. Hear Him. Now think for a minute. Just think about what's going on here. The disciples have just seen Moses of old. And then they hear this command. Hear Him. Hear this one, Jesus. Hear Him, the Beloved Son. What do you think came to their mind? How about Deuteronomy 18, 15? The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses, from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Hear Him. He hears in that moment. Jesus is the Deuteronomy 18, 15 Christ. He's going to come in great power to deliver His people from the land of slavery to the land of promise. He is that one. Now, question. How do we know when God the Father said, this is my beloved Son, hear Him. If you remember, the disciples hit their face real fast, trembling. Now, how do we know How do we know that He was referring to Jesus and not Moses or Elijah? How do we know that? You say, well, it's obvious, right? It is obvious, but let's not take anything for granted. Look at verse 8. Here's how we know. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Now, do you see the picture? Can you visualize it? Jesus speaks with His booming voice from heaven. This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. The disciples hit their face, tremble with fear. Try to visualize it here. And as the glory cloud lifts, and as the, the voice of the Father ceases, if you read the other accounts, they're there trembling. They're just trembling before this voice, trembling before this cloud, and all of a sudden they feel a touch. They feel a touch. And who touched them? Jesus touches them and He says these gentle words, Arise. Do not be afraid. What a picture. This is the picture. The, this spirit, they're scared to death. And here comes the mediator and He touches them and He says, Arise. Don't be afraid. The one gentle voice, the one that comforts their soul, and they, and they lift up their eyes slowly and the only one they see is Christ alone. He's the only one. He is he is the Son of God. Hear Him is what God says. They don't see Moses. They don't see Elijah. Christ is all. He's everything. And He reveals Himself here to be divine, to be God in the flesh, that though He's fully man, yet He is fully God Almighty, that though He must first suffer, though He must first die for our sins, though that's coming in this narrative, though that's coming right, right in the next few chapters, Yet He is that Malachi 4 Christ. He is the Daniel 7 King who will reign forever and ever and ever over every nation, tribe, and tongue. And He reveals it in the transfiguration. Next two verses. Verse 9 and 10. And what's going to happen here, we're about to read it, is Jesus is going to lead Peter, James, and John back down that mountain. Okay? They're about to head back down that mountain. Verse 9. Now as they came down the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. So they came down from the mountain. Jesus took them up the mountain to show them the kingdom of God present with power, the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now He leads them back down the mountain. What did they see? The glorified Jesus. And so He's leading them back down the mountain. And he commands them something. He says, he says, tell no one. T- 
Tell no one these things. Now, why would he want them to not tell anyone? Why did he say, you just saw this, the transfigured Jesus, the, the Malachi, Malachi 4 Christ revealed to you. Why tell no one? Well, if you remember, as we've come through this gospel, what you see over and over again is that they try to forcibly make Christ king before he goes to the cross. And this happens over and over again. And this is at least one reason why he says, tell no one. And then after he says, tell no one, notice that he refers to himself in verse 9 as the Son of Man. He calls himself that. He is the Son of Man. He is that Daniel 7 Christ who will rule forever. And then he also says, catch it, don't say anything about these things until the Son of Man is what? Risen from the dead. So again, he mentions, he's the Son of Man, he's the Malachi for Christ, and he mentions his death, and he mentions his rising from the dead in this verse. And what he's doing, he's just casting this truth in their mind. He's just casting it to their mind. That what? That he is the Deuteronomy 18 Christ. He is the Daniel 7 Christ. He is the Malachi 4 Christ, who's coming in glory, destroying all the wicked, set up his eternal kingdom. But he must first die and rise. And do, do the disciples get it? Was verse 10 say? And they're questioning about what this rising from the dead means. They still don't seem to get it. Alright, verse 11 through 13. Let's read verse 11 through 13. What you're going to see here. Okay? So this amazing display of the they've got the disciples had this amazing think about what they had in their mind. This amazing display has just gone down of the divinity of Jesus, the godness of Jesus. They've just seen it, okay? And then they just heard, and they're pondering it, that he's going to die. And rise, and this is what's in their brain. And in that moment, they're going to ask him a question, and then he's going to answer the question. Look at verse 11. Here's the question. And they asked him, saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come and they did to him whatever they wished as it is written of him. So what you have here is you have two groups of people that are questioning Jesus. Well, you got the scribes and you got the disciples, Peter, James, and John. Okay? Now the scribes aren't present but it's their question, or it's their, it's their accusation. Elijah's got to come first. So who are these scribes? The scribes are these, it's like these Old Testament scholars, right? Remember King Herod in Matthew 2? He asked the scribes, where's the Christ supposed to be born? Because Herod wanted to kill off all the babies there. So where's the Christ supposed to be born? And the scribes tell him, in Bethlehem. So they're these Old Testament scholars, these scribes, okay? And the scribes are usually paired up with the Pharisees. They hated Jesus. Matthew 23, you see Jesus pairing the scribes and Pharisees together, and he rebukes them sharply. The scribes, okay? Now these scribes, why are they saying that Elijah must come first? Where are they getting that from? They're getting that from Malachi 4. Remember reading it? Before that coming of the great day of the Lord, Malachi 4, I will send Elijah the prophet to you. And that's what they're getting for. They say, Elijah must come first. But why are they saying that? Because they want to discredit Jesus. He's not the Christ. Where's Elijah? That's the picture here. And they want to discredit him. And Jesus answers them with three sentences. His first sentence is, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. So he says to him, it's true. Malachi 4 is true. Elijah is coming and he'll restore all all things. The problem is that they, they, these scribes have misinterpreted, misapplied that verse of Scripture. They missed what? And that brings us to Jesus' second sentence. He says, And how it is written 
and how it is written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. You missed that. How did you see that I'm the Malachi 4 Christ? And how did you miss the Isaiah 53 Christ? How did you miss that? And then the third sentence, he says this. But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. And if you look up the parallel accounts on that, he's talking about John the Baptist. They did what John the Baptist says he wished. Luke 1.17, John the Baptist came in the, in the power and the spirit of Elijah, and they just cut his head off. And so here's Jesus' answer. Okay, so I see the scribes want to discredit. They want to cut Jesus' legs out from under him. So they, they twist the scriptures to do it, or they misunderstand the scriptures to do it. But what about the disciples? Why are the disciples asking this question? Why are the disciples saying, uh, why do the scribes say Elijah should come? I mean, think about what they just saw. Why are they asking about the coming of Elijah first? What's going on here? So I want you to think about this. Think about what they just saw. They just saw Jesus' face shining like the sun as His divine glory was just revealed through His body. They just saw Moses talking to Jesus. They just saw Elijah talking with Jesus. And they're thinking in their mind, how could this not be the fulfillment of Malachi chapter 4? How could it not be? Think about it. Malachi 4.2 To you who fear my name, the Son, S-U-N, the Son of righteousness shall rise. And they just saw Jesus' face shining like the sun. Malachi 4.4, remember the law of Moses is the command. They just saw Moses. Malachi 4.5, I will send you Elijah the prophet. They just saw Elijah. And in their mind, they're thinking, how is this not the fulfillment of Malachi chapter 4? How is this not the time where Jesus comes as conquering king right now? And he rules all and he destroys all of his enemies and he reigns forever. How is this not that time now? And then Jesus does the exact same thing he does. Back in Mark chapter 8, he begins to teach him that first, you miss something. The Christ must suffer. Think about the second sentence here that Jesus says. What does he say? And how is it written concerning? It's written. You missed it. It was written. How is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? So in the event of the transfiguration, here's what we see. Jesus confirms something. He confirms to His disciples that He is the Daniel 7 Christ. He confirms to His disciples that He is the Malachi 4 Christ who will return with great power and glory. But then He also, in the event of the transfiguration, corrects their understanding that He's the Isaiah 53 Christ who though He's going to reign as King, He must first suffer a cross. Let's dig into some quick application. Application number one. Rightly divide the word of truth. I just want to give you a quick take on okay? Even outside the just glorying and how awesome Jesus is, that He is all these things that we're talking about. But here's a little takeaway. Rightly divide the word of truth. We must be diligent to rightly handle the truth of God's word, to rightly interpret the truth of God's word. You know that God's word can be wrongly handled, Right? God's word can be wrongly handled. We see a picture of that right here. What do we see? We see the scribes distorting God's word in such a way that people miss Jesus. And they have a verse for it. Don't you see they have a verse for it? And so it gives them confidence in their opinion. And it gives them, it gives them some weight when they persuade others because they have a verse for it. But we've got, to, we've got to rightly divide where they wrongly handled, wrongly divided God's truth. Paul 
in his dying letter, 2 Timothy, writes to Timothy. And what's he concerned about in this dying letter? What's he concerned about? That, that Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.15, that Timothy would rightly handle, rightly divide the word of truth. And to be those as us, to those, us practical application here, to be those who rightly divide the word of truth, we must do what Paul told Timothy to do in that verse, 2 Timothy 2.15. It says, be diligent. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker that doesn't have to be ashamed of rightly dividing, rightly dividing the word of truth. Be diligent. So let me ask you a question. How is your diligence with God's word? Are you diligent with God's word? Are you giving yourself time every day to work through chunks of the Scripture so you see the big picture from Genesis to Revelation? Are you giving yourself time every day to dissect smaller portions of God's Word? How diligent are you with God's Word? Let me give you a quick, you know, quick handoff here. Some of you have probably seen this, but John Piper started doing this thing called Look at the Book. It's called Look at the Book. Many of you have probably seen it. It's a good little tool. It's a good little tool to think through looking and learn how to dissect a little piece of Scripture. So I recommend it to you. But how are you? How are you being diligent with God's Word? Don't compare yourself to other people here. Don't start all that. Just have an open and honest heart before God. How are you at diligence with rightly dividing the Word of truth? There's no substitute for diligence in God's Word. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it says all Scriptures God breathe, and what does it do? It thoroughly equips us for every good work. There's no substitute for that. All Scripture thoroughly equipping us for every good work. Do not lean on your past knowledge of Scripture. Proverbs 19.27 says, Cease listening to instruction and you will stray from the words of knowledge. Don't depend on something you know in the past. What about now? What about your diligence to rightly divide God's Word right now? What are you doing with the Word? Would you describe your time, your, your pursuit of the Word of God as hungry for truth? Jeremiah 15, 16, your words were found and I ate them and they became to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Would you describe your time in God's Word as exercise, as training? 1 Timothy 4, 7, exercise yourself toward godliness. Is that how you would describe your time in God's Word? Think, think of Mark 9, 1 through 13. Think of our passage today. Through mishandling God's Word, Satan, and I'm saying Satan, because over there in Mark chapter 8, remember what happened? Mark chapter 8, Peter, you're the Christ. Jesus says the Christ must suffer. Peter comes against that. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. This is satanic. It's a satanic. You see that? So Satan, through mishandling of God's word, leads these scribes, and we read about Mark chapter 9, leads them to reject Jesus and then go to hell forever. Do you see how serious this is? This is very, very serious. Think of the damage that Satan can do when we deal with his words lightly. And this should be far in our pants to be diligent to rightly divide the Word of God. Now, let me give you a quick tip. This is a last application. And this is actually a tip on rightly dividing the Word of God. Get this phrase in your head. The centrality of the cross. Think about it. The centrality of the cross. That phrase... And if you know why I say that from the Bible, we'll help you. It'll help you to rightly divide the word truth. The centrality of the cross, okay? Just think about it. What does it mean? The cross at the very center. Think about this. One of Satan's major tactics 
is to minimize and decentralize the cross of Jesus Christ. That's a tactic. He had, think about it, he had a whole nation looking for a Christ and what was missing? A cross. He had his disciples looking for a Christ and what was missing? A cross. Shouldn't this put a red flag up in your mind? Just some sort of red flag? The, the centrality of the cross. Think about it, okay? This is a major focus of this whole section of Scripture. From chapter 8, verse 29 of Mark, okay? Jesus says, he says, who do you say I am? You are the Christ, and he begins to teach them that the Christ must suffer and die and rise again the third day. And if you just read from, from Mark chapter 8, that climax where he says you are the Christ, and you just keep reading all the way through to the end of Mark, you're going to see this push over and over again. The Christ must suffer. He's pushing them. He's trying to get them to see that. The Christ must suffer. He must die for the sins of his people. It's a major focus. Moses, Moses and Elijah show up, and they can't think of anything else to talk about. Cross. Is central. The cross is central to the gospel. Okay? If you read 1 Corinthians 1, 17 through 18, if you read that, that verse, it says, it says the gospel in verse 17, the word gospel is there. And then in the next verse, you think it's going to call it gospel, but you know what it calls it? The message of the cross. The cross is central to the gospel of Jesus Christ. To borrow a phrase from John Piper, it's the blazing center of the gospel cross it's central to the gospel and the gospel is the most important reality ever in all the earth and all the heavens therefore there is no rival to the cross what about the cross galatians 6 14 paul says i only boast in the cross of jesus christ think about the lord's supper jesus could have given us anything he could have given us anything to do over and over again in remembrance of what and yet, he, he gave us something to do in remembrance of His death, of His broken body, His shed blood, the centrality of the cross. Listen to this. This is from a book called What is the Gospel? It's by Greg Gilbert. And this is a chapter that says, it's talking about keeping the cross at the center. Listen to this phrase. This is from Greg Gilbert. He says this, I believe one of the greatest dangers of the body of Christ that faces us today is the temptation to rethink and rearticulate the gospel in a way that makes it center something other than the death of Jesus on the cross in the place of sinners. Do you take that warning? He says he thinks it's the greatest danger. What do you think? You think Satan wants to do that? Decentralize the cross? Listen to this from Paul Washer. This comes from his book, The Gospel, Power, and Message. He says this, one of the greatest maladies of contemporary gospel preaching is that it rarely explains the cross of Christ. Now, I've made my case, I hope, for the centrality of the cross. Okay? It's what this passage makes me think of. Jesus keeps moving over and over again to the cross. You missed it, that I'm the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. So therefore do what? Centrality of the cross, therefore do what? And I'll give you two quick things. Be knowledgeable of this. Be knowledgeable of the cross of Jesus Christ. What about the gospel you preach? Could I hear the gospel you preach and back up and put it the title? That's the message of the cross. Or what about hearing other people preach? When you listen, do you have a discerning ear? When you sit through different things, weddings, funerals, 
preaching at churches anywhere, online, anywhere, and you hear preaching, you hear talk, not even just preaching, but just talk amongst us, and you hear something, are you able to discern that's gospel or it's not gospel? Well, let me give you a tip. The centrality of the cross. Is it the message of the cross or is it not? And then one more thing here. Be jealous over this. Be full of zeal full of jealousy over this. If you read Galatians chapter 1, a lot of us have been talking about it, I know. This, the cross is being moved out of the way. Paul looks at these Galatians and says, he said, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. But they're moving away to something else. And the cross is getting moved. They said, I'm not saying they don't believe the cross. It's just getting moved out of the way. Okay? And then Paul comes at it with a raging zeal. He says, I can't believe you're turning away to something else. He said, if anybody preaches any other gospel, even an angel from heaven, let him be accursed in Galatians chapter 1. You see how he's full of zeal over this? You be that way. Be full of jealousy. Be full of zeal over the cross of Christ. There are things to get fiery about. There are things to get fired up about. And the cross is the highest of the high. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word. And I just pray, God, that you make us a people that rightly divide your word. God, I pray that you make us a people that in our hearts your cross is the blazing center, God, and even of our gospel that we preach, that you make your cross a blazing center. And God, I praise you for revealing yourself to your disciples and to us, your disciples, in this way, in this transfiguration, just revealing yourself in your divine glory and power. And God, we can't wait to worship you that way in all of eternity. And thank you, Lord, that you died on the cross for our sins. In Jesus' name, amen.